0: Barheads. Dearly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together on a morning like this uh, to enjoy a moment in time like this one that you've ordained for this congregation. Father, thank you for making us family. Um, Thank you for bringing us together so faithfully in a building that You set aside from eternity past to do this thing, even this very message, Father. Thank you for giving us the faculties to be able to hear a message like this, to read it, to embrace it, to love it. We're just so grateful for your grace, your mercy, and of course, your love. We pray for those in the congregation that can't be with us this morning. We want them to know that we're with them in spirit, Father, and we pray to you that you return them to the fold. As soon as possible, your will be done, of course. We also pray for those that are still lost in this world, Father, without hope that they be humbled and receive saving faith before it's too late. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross 2,000 years ago to cancel out that debt against us and to make a morning of rejoicing like this a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part 28 of Proverbs 17, Wisdom. Uh, I want to open up with a review of a little sidebar that we did um, on Thursday. Um, And it was really so that the Holy Spirit could drive this point up here on the board home. The mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. We have to think of the mind of Christ this way. The Bible as a whole is the very mind of Christ. So if you say, what's the mind of Christ? You don't just say, oh, it's the red letters. You know, it's when he was recorded speaking. No, this is the mind of Christ. So the Bible as a whole is the very mind of Christ. We don't just, quote, hear from Jesus Christ when we read the red letters in our Bibles. The Bible is his word. His mind, his thoughts, his heart, the whole of it. Remember, the inspiration came from God, the Holy Spirit, who's also called the Spirit of Christ. Their thoughts, their minds, they're not separate. They're intrinsically the same. And it's been that way since or from eternity past, long before human history even began. So if we want to know Jesus, we read the whole Bible. We truly want to understand Jesus, his mind, his heart, his thoughts, his words. Um, We read the whole Bible. I think, uh, you know, it's quite possible and maybe even probable that a lot of Christians today only read, say, the New Testament or only certain things in the New Testament. I know people that hardly read the Gospels because they don't think that Jesus' words apply to them today. Anyways, that sidebar that helped drive the point on the board home was concerning Sabbath rest. Go to Exodus 20, verse 8. Sabbath rest. You could argue that this morning is a Sabbath rest because that's all a Sabbath is, right? It's just a rest. But for Israel, it was a command. It was one of the Ten Commandments, you see. Exodus 20, verse 8, is, which is, is, is where we actually see that command given. Exodus 20, verse 8. So the sidebar is to establish the mind of Christ, just to get a better idea of how the mind of Christ, you know, crosses all boundaries in the Bible, that it really is the entire Bible. Um, The Spirit just wanted to use the Sabbath, really. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Okay. And that is one of the Ten Commandments that was given under the Mosaic Law. Great. Great. One of the Ten Commandments under the Mosaic Law. Up here on the board, though, it became perverted. The religious Jews perverted the heck out of it. They turned it into a whip, basically, which is what they loved to do because that's what they wanted to do was to oppress those under that religion and keep themselves up atop of it. So the religious perversion, the Jewish leaders had made the Sabbath, and we just read it in Exodus 20, verse 8, part of a religious works program, which is bizarre when you think about the fact that Sabbath means rest. Again, part of a religious works program which ultimately became the opposite, the opposite of God's intended result. It enslaved those. It was meant to give rest to. What a perversion. It enslaved those it was meant to give rest to. It became work to keep the Sabbath. UNDER THE JEWISH LAW. AGAIN, THE JEWISH LEADERS HAD MADE THE SABBATH PART OF A RELIGIOUS WORKS PROGRAM, WHICH ULTIMATELY BECAME THE OPPOSITE OF GOD'S INTENDED RESULT. IT ENSLAVED THOSE IT WAS MEANT TO GIVE REST TO. IT BECAME WORK TO KEEP THE SABBATH UNDER JEWISH LAW. NOW, LET'S COMPARE CHRIST'S MIND ON THE SABBATH, BECAUSE THAT IS HIS MIND. HE SAID, THIS IS MY ECONOMY FOR ISRAEL. OBVIOUSLY, THAT'S LONG GONE. But nonetheless, at that moment in time, this is what I want. Therefore, it's one of the Ten Commandments. But that's not the end of Christ's mind, as we know. So let's compare Christ's mind on the Sabbath, as it is given in Exodus 20, verse 8, to another passage in the Old Testament, even. Go to Deuteronomy 23, 24. Deuteronomy 23, 24, right around the corner. Deuteronomy 23, verse 24. So we have a command given to Israel. Keep the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Deuteronomy 23, 24 says, If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, um, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. In other words, Take what you need only, okay? If you're hungry, um, the command is that you can take from the produce of a farmer to satisfy your hunger, to make sure that you're fed, right? And this would have been something that the farmers would have to abide in as well. Verse 25, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So according to the word of God, farmers were to share portions of their produce with those in need. And that makes sense, right? In God's economy, he says he promises to take care of us, our base needs, like eating. And so he wants us all to join in his economy, which in that economy, with the details of that economy, implies someone is giving up this food. So it makes sense, right? So again, if a traveler were walking by, uh, you know, on, say, the Sabbath, and they needed to eat, then they had the God given right to pluck and eat. Didn't matter if it was on the Sabbath, they had to eat. Again, in an agricultural society, though, like theirs, this plucking, even, would be construed as work. I mean, farming and gathering is work, right? Even just pulling it off the stock or plucking grapes or what have you. That would be construed as work. Now let's fast forward to the New Testament, Ma- uh, Mark 2:23. Mark 2:23. Mark 2 verse 23. So, so far we've got two little, you know, tidbits of information on the Sabbath from the mind of Christ. Now we go forward and we actually see him in his incarnation respond on the topic of the Sabbath. Mark 2, 23. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields. Sound familiar? And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck Heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And you have to qualify lawful from their perspective. That was with regards to their religious standards, not God's. Okay, up, oh, man? Someone? Yeah. Verse 24. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath, right? Lawful by their religious standards, not God's. See, they had already turned it into a whip. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any, but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Have you not heard this, in other words? Was David out of line, or did you miss that part? Were you too busy making up standards to live by, religion? Were you too busy compiling religious to-dos in order to crack that whip, to build the whip itself, that you missed something this fundamental? And he said to them, to set the record straight, same mind, remember, that we read in Exodus and Deuteronomy, same mind in the entire Bible. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was to give you rest, not to turn it into bondage. It wasn't for you to try to prove yourself religiously worthy. That's not what the Sabbath was ever meant to be. It was meant to give you rest. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was for the benefit of Israel, not their bondage. That was the message. For the benefit, not their bondage. So... Here's the point for today's context up here on the board. The immutable, and immutable is just a fancy theological word that means it doesn't ever change. The immutable mind of Christ. Jesus' words in Mark 2, 23 to 28 are perfectly harmonious with his word in Exodus 20, verse 8, and Deuteronomy 23, 24 to 25, for example. I mean, I could just throw anything on there. I could just, take, I could just go, all right, this verse right here is harmonious with this one. Which is this one? See, I'm not even looking, right? I don't need to. That's the whole point. It's perfectly harmonious. And it has never changed. Right? The only distinction is that the Sabbath to the Jews during Jesus' time, it was part of the Mosaic Law. But when he came... He fulfilled that law and did away with it so that today in what we live in, which is called the church age, a different economy, um, we're no longer under that command. Up here in the board, Matthew five seventeen. do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to abolish them, but I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, but to fulfill them. If we were still under the Mosaic Law, we'd have to perform things like altar sacrifices and not eat certain foods, etc., etc. Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the very manifestation of grace and truth, well, He is the law to us. Remember, the Bible says that God is love. It also says that Christ is God. In the church age, we are to abide by the law of love. Do you see this? Do you see the theology? It's His law. Christ is God. God is love. The law is love for us. So He is the law to us. In other words, He is it. Go to Romans thirteen eight. Romans thirteen eight. I love. I, we're so blessed to be in this era, right? In this economy. Because we're under the reins, if you would. Or we're in the economy of grace. Where the law is actually love. Romans 13, verse 8. <clears throat> Romans thirteen eight. O Owe no one anything Except to love each other. How's that? That's what you owe each other. To love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Boy, that seems kind of simple. And you know what? It really is simple. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. That's the law that we're under. We don't do it because it's a commandment under the Mosaic law. We do it out of love. I don't want to steal from my neighbor because of love. I don't want to hurt them because of love. I don't want to murder them because I love. So the law of love is the law that we are under, which is different than the economy that the Jews were under, as we note in the Old Testament. We obtain righteousness in the practical sense by abiding in the law of love. That's our primary concern, is what I'm doing, is it Loving. Is what I'm doing right now. Is it love? That's our law. And that's simple, right? Amen. I love it. That's a heck of a lot easier. Than what the Jews are under, what Israel was under. It's a heck of a lot easier. But it's also a bit more demanding. If you really think about it. Because With a blanket statement like that, all the crevices, all the little nooks and crannies that you can kind of lawyer your way out of or into, I guess you should say, are gone. They're all covered. They're all covered by love. The baseline question is, what I'm doing, am I doing it out of love? That's it. That's it. And that's our guiding principle. Who happens to be, or it happens to be synonymous with our great shepherd, Jesus Christ himself. Because he is love. Hmm. So we obtain righteousness in the practical sense by abiding in the law of love. What Jesus was saying in Mark 2.27 the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, was that behind the Sabbath even was love. Because remember, his mind is the same. right? He's immutable. God commanded they rest after he commanded they perform all of the other commandments out of love. What he didn't command was what the Jews did, which was to turn it into an oppressive whip. And if you're religious in any way, maybe your flesh is balking what I'm teaching right now. Because you like religion, you see. You like religion because if you're, a, if you're a religious do-gooder and someone gives you a bar, well, guess what? You can jump over the bar. Do you understand? And then on the other side, claim, <gasps> you see what I just did? I jumped over that bar. You see what I just did? I did this thing. Ba-ba-da. What's the Bible say? Blow, blow your own trumpet. Don't do it. God will reward you in private. You don't need to blow your own trumpet. See what I did? That's why religious people like religious practice. It's because they feel able to live up to it to some degree, turn around and go, look at all the stuff I've done today. In any case, what Jesus didn't command is what the, G- what the Jews did to the Sabbath, which was to turn it into an oppressive whip. How could the same mind that intends to set us free make a command to rest become a whip? How could the same mind that intends to set us free make a command to rest become a whip? Up here on the board, the truth is, as we learned on Thursday, In this economy that we live in, we call it the church age, Christians are never taught to keep the Sabbath, capital S. It's not that thing that Israel had to uphold. Paul wrote several places in his letters about the bondage of keeping the Sabbath religiously, as the Jews did. Go to Colossians 2, verse 16. Colossians 2, verse 16. Might we rest on a day like today, come together in a church like this one? Little C Church, right? Yeah, absolutely. Is God in favor of that? Absolutely he is. Does he like the fact that we're all resting today, that we're being, you know, filled up and edified and built up and fed? Absolutely. Does he like that we come to the table to dine together, to fellowship together? Absolutely. But it's not a whip. That's why I don't call you up and say, you lost a few chits today. You didn't show up. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not here to to govern you. What comes from this pulpit is between you and God, the Holy Spirit. Will I tell you from the pulpit you should be here? Absolutely. Will I say it sternly? Absolutely. If you do call me up, I might even tell you, you should be there. You should read all the blogs. You should take all of the grace that God has given you through this ministry. If you're called to this ministry, you should take all of it. Will I tell you from the pulpit that? Absolutely. But am I going to try to whip you into shape with some religious practices? Hey! Hey! We gather together at 10 a.m. on Sundays. You be here. <laughs> <laughs> Right? We're going to do drill out in, the, out in the yard over here. Right? Give me 20. Am I going to be a in my military days? No. That's foolishness. That's bondage. I want you to be here because of love. Not for me. Because God knows. That was a joke. <laughs> for, <laughs> for love of Christ. That's why you're here. You want to learn him. You want to take him in. You want to drink him, right? So you don't thirst right? You want to take him in. You love being here. Why? Because what's the alternative? You're taking the world from that sewer pipe you call a 72-inch flat screen TV, that disgusting smartphone you have with all your little disgusting little apps on it, you know, the perverted ones, the gross ones, the ones that tap you right into the very artery of the world, with all the grotesqueness of it, that thing, that's, you know, that's the alternative to being here right now, listening to the word of truth. Yeah. I think he loves you. I think he called you here this day for a special reason, for a reason, my friends, to give you this message, to say, this, these are your choices. Every day, every moment of every day, you, you have basically two choices, Right? You can live for him or you can live for the world. You can live for others or you can live for yourself. You see? But nonetheless, Christians are never taught to keep the Sabbath. If you become religious about something like that, you are living for yourself because now you're being religious and religion is a function, if you would, or a byproduct of what we would call creature credit. And that's Romans 1. Paul wrote several places in his letters, again, about the bondage of keeping the Sabbath religiously, as the Jews did. You at Colossians 2.16 Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. In other words, don't let anybody whip you. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So let's Think about this. Is it good to take a rest after you've worked hard? I mean, yeah. But we are no longer compelled by the Mosaic law to observe the Sabbath day. Rather, our motivation has been elevated to the law of love. Elevated to the law of love. In this case, you could say that we love the Lord and ourselves even whenever we tend to our own vineyard. That's love. If we're tired, if we're in need, if we just need rest, that's what love looks like. Take a rest then. It's not an expression of love for self, taking care of your own vineyard, in other words if you abuse yourself by never taking a break. Under the economy of grace, we are motivated by love. And I think of it this way. You know, it's more of a pull than a push. Whenever I hear law or a commandment, it's kind of a push, right? Most people think, oh, that's a push. There's a boundary condition. right? I think of, remember the bowling alley when you were a kid and they put up the rails? You're like, boing, 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 right? it's like a boundary condition, right? As opposed to a person who says, ooh, I got my eye on that. Is it called the kingpin, the one in the front? All right, I got my eye on the kingpin right there. I'm just going to go a little bit of right around. I'm going to hook it in there, poof, strike. That's a pull, right? You want that thing. You don't just bounce it off the side, ding, 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 ding. Push versus pull. The law of love is a pull model. Just like I described, why are you here? I hope, you love Christ. I hope you want to fellowship. I hope you want to encourage others by being here. I hope all of these things, because those, that's the essence of love. So back to this work thing, though. You might ask, well, in the church age, then when should we rest? Up here in the board, I'll give you the Amplified. Colossians three twenty-three to 24. Whatever you do, Whatever your task may be, work from the soul. That is, put in your very best effort. There's no real wiggle room here, folks. Sorry. Sorry. Work from the soul. That is, put in your very best effort as something done for the Lord and not for men. Knowing with all certainty that it is from the Lord, not from men, that you will receive the inheritance which is your greatest reward it is the Lord Christ whom you actually serve that's why you work hard and that's out of love for him right I mean I'm not gonna lie these times I mean this is right now I'm working for you right Uh, sometimes I don't want to be here what (laughs) Sometimes I don't want to be here, right? Whatever. Who do I come here for? Well, I do come for you, but first and foremost, for him. I love him. That's why I do it. I say, this, one's going to be, this one has to be for you alone there, Lord. <laughs> I'm going to show up. I'm going to do my thing, but it's out of love. Because right now I don't really like them. <laughs> I don't really like them right now, to be totally honest. Anyways, so it's out of love that you work hard. So to answer the question, when do we rest? It's when we've abided in, say, this New Testament command on the board. When you can look in the mirror, when you can go to Him in prayer and say, "Had a uh, a good week, Lord. I worked hard. Um, I did my very best." How about that? I did my very best. And, you know, you don't get to play that little weird game you used to play with your parents, right? When they'd say, go out and do the lawn or something. Like, I-, I did my very best. Right? And you were behind the oak tree. <laughs> I don't think that's your very best. You don't know, get that? Because the Lord can see everything. I mean, it seems that you guys are laughing at the kids, but you know that adults do it at work. Go to any fast food restaurant. Where's my Big Mac, man? Kids back it. <laughs> Where's my fry? Fries come out, they're like, they're like this big and black. It's because he's like just, oh, that thing was going off. Yeah, that thing's been going off for like 20 minutes, you bozo. That kind of stuff. One thing I've learned, I think DJ and I talk about this sometimes. Everybody, you know, kids, kids just grow up into adults. Adults are just like big kids, right? They're just usually better at manipulating. That's all it is. You've just become better at playing the game. That's all. You're still a selfish brat. Good morning, Sunday. This is why I don't like to show up, alright? right? (laughs) This is it right here. (laughs) I'm just kidding. We all do it. I'm just as guilty, right? We just grow up, we're better at being jerks. Whoa, Diane. (laughs) Diane's like, yeah, amen. (laughs) we are what we are right i mean that's all that let's at least be honest that's the beginning of humility can we just be ourselves here can we just be honest um you know anyways when do we rest after we've worked our very best put in our very best effort for him that's it do we need a do we need a, a a law do we need a commandment do we need to You know, to to keep the Sabbath the way that Israel... No, we don't. We just remember Him. And say, the law of love is upon me. I want to do this for Him. I want to do my very best for Him. And after that, then I can rest. Hmm. You see how that's a higher thing? Everybody's like, oh man, we're free of the Mosaic law. Yeah, but you're under the law of love. That's a higher calling. It's actually a more demanding calling when you get right down to it because there's no escaping the pervasiveness of the law of love. Again, up here on the board, the church age, Christians are never taught to keep the Sabbath. Now, here's a perfect example involving the Lord of the Sabbath telling his disciples to take a breather. Go to Mark 6.30. Mark 6, verse 30. Okay. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And if the Sabbath is meant to provide rest, then we don't don't artificially bound it. We don't say, oh, we only do that on Saturdays. You know, we only do that on Sundays. We do it when we need to do it. And if there's work that's got to be done on a Saturday or a Sunday, then we do that too. I mean, you know, if your family's starving, and you say, I can't get in the car and go to get get a grocery um, because it's, you know, the Sabbath day. So what, your family goes hungry? Yeah. Mark 630. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. In other words, they had worked hard for him. They had worked hard for him. And he said to them, look, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and what? Rest a while. You worked hard. Rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Do you see? That's the essence of Sabbath for us. That's the essence it's always been in Christ's mind. It's for man to take a rest. It's not a whip. So I hope that little sidebar on the Sabbath has helped you understand the one of the Ten Commandments that isn't established for the church age. The the other nine are reiterated, reestablished, if you would. Still under the law of grace, or under the law of love, under the economy of grace, as you would call it. But this one's not mentioned. This one's not given again. Only that it's okay to rest. Take a rest if you need to. Take care of your vineyard. Because that's the mind of Christ. But I do want you to work hard, do your very best. That's my mind, too. See? So it gives you thinking about one thing that spans the whole Bible. It gives you a broader perspective of the very mind of Christ. Up here on the board, again, the mind of Christ. This is the point we've developed, even with that little sidebar. The Bible as a whole is the very mind of Christ. We don't just, quote, hear from Jesus Christ when we read the red letters in our Bibles. The Bible is his word, his mind, his thoughts, his heart. That's how we think about the Bible. The whole of it is his mind. All right. Keep that thought fresh in your mind as we head on back to our primary course of study. Go to Proverbs 17, verse 5. That is our series titled, Proverbs 17 Wisdom, right? We've made it so far as verse 5. Whew! Pretty cool. A lot to say. A lot to say. Proverbs 17, verse 5. If you don't have a like a marker there by now, I don't know what to tell you. Why is everybody so quiet? I'm serious. If you have a marker there at this point? I mean, it's literally in the title of our messages. Why is everybody turning? Just go like that. You know, you pull a little marker out. Look, I'm going to show you how to do it. You ready? This is how you do it. You see this, this is it right here. Right? And you go, oh, that page right there. And you go, you let it fall in the middle, like that. Technology, <laughs> right? right? Come on, people. Anyways, that's me ripping on you. Happy Sunday. Proverbs 17:5. Whoever mocks, derides, expresses contempt for, ridicules. Whoever mocks the poor insults his Maker. Think about that. It's wholly grotesque. It's not kind of grotesque. It's wholly not h. Like, W-H, holy, all, all of it. It's grotesque. Who mocks the poor? What kind of jackass mocks the poor? Honestly. There's few things, in my opinion, that are grosser than that. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. So here's the key principle up here on the board. Mocking the poor insults God. The, to mock the creature is to insult the creator. For it is the creator who made the creature. What are you saying? His work's not good enough? That's what you're saying? His decision to give that person, to, to, to put him in, I don't know, southeast India? Destitute parts of the Philippines? See, we're so egocentric. We don't even think beyond America. Oh, well, what are you talking about? Yeah, well, I've been around the world, my friends. There's a lot of poor people out there, really poor people, who on average are a lot more hungry than most of you for the word of truth. I hate to say it that way, but that's the God's honest truth. They would, they would die in, a, in being facetious to be here right now, right? I can't even tell you how many emails I get every day from across the globe, Pakistan, Philippines, India. I mean, the website, last time I checked, I want to say 140 countries come in. We get like 5,500 hits a, a month, visitors to the website from all over the world, and America's not even close to the top anymore. It's like number five down the list, and it's sinking. I've been at this, well, a little about 11 years or something like that, I don't know. And America was at the top, and it's going, bloop, bloop, bloop. it's like going down. I don't know, you, you translate in your own brain what you think that means. Anyways, to mock the creature is to insult the Creator, for it is the Creator who made the creature. To say God made a mistake, or, you know, to say, oh, wow, why'd you put him there? Well, that wasn't very nice of you, God, to make that person poor. I think I'm going to make fun of them. Mm-hmm. I think that gives me license to mock. Well, when you mock the creature, you're insulting the creator who put that creature there. Let me give you the message translation for the sake of additional perspective on Psalm 139, 13 through 16. Just sit back. I'll read it to you up here on the board. Psalm 139, 13 to 16, the message. Oh, yes, you shaped me first inside, then out. You formed me in my mother's womb. I thank you, high God, your breathtaking body and soul. I am marvelously made. I worship in adoration. What a creation. Next. You know me inside and out. You know every bone in my body. You know exactly how I was made, bit by bit, how I was sculpted from nothing into something. And then lastly, like an open book, you watched me grow from conception To birth, that's a um, verse, by the way, for um, pro-choices to chew on. From conception, means you're made inside the mother's womb. And to take that life is a murder. Like an open book, you watched me grow from conception to birth. All the stages of my life were spread out before you. The days of my life all prepared before I'd even lived one day. Any questions? Any questions on who decided a person's life, your life, your poor neighbor's life, your rich neighbor's life? Any questions on who decided, who ordained it, before you were even born? Before that poor person was even born, God ordained the entirety of that person's life. And so for some moron to come in from the side, another creature to come in from the side and mock that decision is to insult God. That's the point. That's what makes it so ugly. So ugly. When we think of ourselves as well as every other human being ever created by the unmistakable hand of God, we must remember this beautiful perspective. Again, the abomination is in verse 5 of Proverbs 17. Are you there? Good. Here's the abomination. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Again, here's the principle up here on the board. Mocking the poor insults God. To mock the creature is to insult the Creator, for it is the Creator who made the creature. Psalm 139.14 we just read, and last time we looked at Isaiah 44.24. God ordained the lives of the poor. Jesus said this as well. Go to Mark 14, 7. Mark 14, verse 7. God ordained the lives of the poor. Mark 14, verse 7. These are this is Jesus' words, right? He's not like some social activist like we have today who think they're going to solve world hunger. Jesus Christ said what? For you always have the poor with you. Any questions? In other words, that's his way of saying in a very succinct way that his Father in heaven ordained there to be poor. I mean, if you really want to get technical about it, even philosophical about it, there would be no such thing as poor if they weren't rich. There'd be no rich if they weren't poor. You'd need one to have the other, right? For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Jesus knew what the Spirit's teaching us 2,000 years ago. that our Father in Heaven molds each of us the way He personally desires to do so. And so the question on the table, the obvious question is, who the heck are we to question Him? If His choices are perfect, He's our Creator, who the heck are we? Go to Isaiah 64, verse 8. Isaiah 64, verse 8. Who are we to question him? And who are we to question his choices regarding others? That's the point. That's the bigger point. Isaiah 64, verse 8. Who are we to question him? Isaiah 64, verse 8 reads, But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter, we are all the work of your hand. We're the clay, you're the potter. Who are we? This is the perspective we must keep always. God is our creator, therefore he is our sovereign. To think otherwise is as asinine as it is to insulting him. So here's something to think about. I was trying to drive this home for you. Suppose you go home today and, you know, you make a little figurine. out of. Remember Play-Doh it used to come, those yellow cardboard things? Remember Play-Doh? So you go home, you make a little Mr. Bill, right? You make a little figurine. It doesn't have to be Mr. Bill. That's probably wrong. You make a little figurine out of Play-Doh. And then the figurine decides you have no rights over it. <laughs> Just up and sits up and is like, be gone with you. <laughs> right? Right? You're laughing, right? It's, what are you, you're laughing kind of because of the silliness of the situation. But you're also laughing and go, really? You're going to sit up and this is how this is going to go? You're going to tell me you're to be gone? So your little figurine decides to emancipate itself from your sovereignty. Well, up here on the board, that's a picture of Romans 1, 18 to 19. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, actively knowing, suppress. Remember, I gave you the original language on that word suppress several times in the past. It's an active thing that they're doing. It's a daily thing that they're doing. Who by their unrighteousness actively and knowingly suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Can you imagine if the little figurine spoke to you and said, you have no power over me. I declare myself independent. Right now, when you're so you're probably like, some of you are laughing, but some of you are like, I think I might squash him. <laughs> right? I might just go. Pfft. I'm going to reform this one. This one's a little cocky. I <laughs> just get a little puffed up. <laughs> Start over. Need a little more, uh, I don't know, maybe a different color in there. It's laughable. So let's read some more on the mind of Christ now, though. And once again, notice how fluidly and without reservation we are going to read from the Old Testament. So we're going back. If you notice, we're going like, la, 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 la. You know, it's the mind of Christ, right? We can go here. We can go there. It doesn't matter. Go to Jeremiah 18, verse 1. Jeremiah 18, verse 1. As as the Spirit's been pounding into our brains for years now, if you're going to do that, the one thing you have to maintain is integrity to context. That's the thing that changes. His mind never changes. The context changes. Different eras, different economies, different situations. You know what I mean? But it's, it's not, I mean, it's no different. I don't, you know, I, don't love, I don't love my kids any less if one day I'm disciplining them and the next day I'm hugging them. You know, it's, it's the same love. It's just a different situation. You take things out of context, right? Depending on which scene you happen to see, you might say, what a loving dad. Ooh, what a tyrant. If you take things out of context, right? And people love to do that with the Holy Bible. Well, I only want to read from Psalms because it makes me feel giddy. I only want to read from You know, I only want to read the red letters because it always makes me feel, you know, warm and loved and comfy. I only want to read the book of, oh gosh, I only want to read the book of Revelation because I'm one of those nuts that stays up all night and just watches the, you know, the apocalypse stuff and how everybody's got a conspiracy theory about the end times and it's like, that's coming, it's coming! Right, and there's a little chicken running around the yard saying the the sky is falling. (laughs) See what I did there? Right? Ah, people love morbid curiosity with the end times. Listen, folks, it's not just the book of Revelation. It's the revelation of, finish the sentence, of Jesus Christ. It's not about your morbid fascination with the end times. Anything wrong with knowing those things? Of course not. But don't be stuck in this morbid fascination about things to come. The whole book is about revealing Jesus Christ. It's the end of his mind in human history being revealed. That's how you look at the book of Revelation. It's not, it's not about Armageddon or, do you follow what I'm getting at? It's not, that's not why you study the book of Revelation. Most people I know are not even set up for success to read that book in any depth because they don't know enough about the mind of Christ. And so they get sucked into the, the midnight shows. Right, and then I got to hear about it and get emails about how, you know, um, it's definitely. Oh, oh, Pastor, no, 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 no. I, I think I need to share this with you. It's definitely the end times. We got about a week and a half left. <laughs> I know. I know because I saw this guy on the TV, and he made so much sense. He made sense because you don't understand the mind of Christ fully yet. Or you just have this weird, morbid thing with end times. Anyways, that's my rant. Jeremiah 18, verse 1. (laughs) The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do it. Now, therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. But they say, That is in vain. We will follow our own plans and will, ev- will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Uh-oh. All right. So you saw that potter in the clay. You saw God's idea. Hey, listen, if I decide to do something you know, against them and then I change my mind in one direction, that's fine. And change of mind is an anthropopathism. Um, I don't want to use a huge word, but it's it just us applying our own thinking to God. right? But if he wants to do one thing for now and then another thing later and then or vice versa, it's totally up to him. He's the potter. We're the clay. If he wants to mold us a little different tomorrow than today, OK. Who are we? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna mock the person who got changed? Right? Oh, man, I thought, hey, psst, they were doing so well. And then they made that bad investment, and now they're on skid row. <laughs> Seriously? That's what's in you? Yeah, that's what's in you. Yeah, I know. Right? But that was God's choice. He ordained it. He ordained it. Okay, so let's jump back to the same mind of Christ in the New Testament. Paul refers back to this Old Testament analogy. Go to Romans 9, verse 20. Romans 9, verse 20. So, back to the New Testament, right? Spent a little time. Paul knew Jesus Christ, you know, personally, up close. Knew that his mind preexisted, New Testament, writing, his own writing, right? It is. Jesus has always felt this way about such things. Romans 9.20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Did we not just see that in the Old Testament too? In Jeremiah? Yep. How could that be? Same mind. That's how it can be. It's literally the same mind. It's the mind of Christ. Different circumstances, different times, but the same mind. Again, here's the fundamental point we are developing here up here on the board. Mocking the poor insults God. To mock the creature is to insult the Creator, for it is the Creator who made the creature. Okay, let's go back to Proverbs 17, verse 5. Okay, you're there because you got the tab there? Let's go. Proverbs 17, verse 5. After all that ridicule, if you do not have a string or something there, I don't know what to do. Right? Proverbs 17, verse 5. Whoever mocks the poor, insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. All right, let's just go on a little bit further before I close. Let's look at the second phrase in this verse. What does it say? He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. So this second phrase is tied directly to the first in the sense that it's often the case that calamity befalls the poor or vice versa. In any case, anyone who takes a heartless satisfaction in calamity will be punished. That's the point. They will be punished. Um, And that brings into remembrance a few recent principles from earlier verses in this Proverbs 17 passage. One is that a person who mocks the poor and is, quote, glad at calamity is someone who obviously doesn't fear the Lord God. This person believes that God is somehow incapable of punishing them for mocking His creation, and it reminds you a little bit of the lion's cage at the zoo. Did we talk about this, the lion's cage, last time? No, we talked about the lion in the open though. Remember in the, the Great White Shark? Some be like, Oh, really? We did. Think of the lion the lion 's cage at the zoo. some of you are like, I hate zoos i'm yeah well i 'm sorry, just imagine the lion 's cage at the zoo. Have you ever seen you know I mean they 're on YouTube obviously if you 're not on YouTube, whatever, good for you, probably, but have you ever seen a video of someone taunting the lion right? thick glass, say, but there's this you know giant male you know, lion, I don't know, hundreds of pounds, maybe six, seven hundred pounds of, like, ridiculousness, right? And they're taunting the lion. The only reason they are doing that is because they have faith in the strength of the glass. Otherwise, they'd never dream of taunting a lion. You know, to me... Mocking the Lord, and by the way, Jesus is called the Lion of Judah, just saying. Mocking the Lord is like putting a lion's patience to test by poking it. Only in this case, there's no cage holding him back. That's how, it, to me, that's what it's like. They, The person who taunts the, the living God thinks there's a glass there, thinks that he can't harm them, thinks that they can... Poke it, poke him and taunt him, and there's nothing he can do about it. But there is no glass. And it's pretty darn audacious to taunt the living God. When the Bible says that God is not mocked, it means there's no glass. Does that make sense? It means there's no glass. When you're poking him, when you're taunting him, when you're mocking his creation, um, and there's no glass, well, you draw your own conclusion. The Bible says God is not mocked. So reflect on that. He may choose to use instruments that are a mocking Moron doesn't see coming. Right? He may use certain things in a a moron's life as instruments. For example, think of Goliath, you know, nine foot Goliath, when he was mocking the Jews. And along comes a young boy, a little, you know, a little half point. David. The youngest kid in the brood, you know, he's out there, la, la, la. Remember what David said up here on the board? I got goosebumps right now. 1 Samuel seventeen thirty six. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. That was half-point's response to big old Goliath's taunting of God. He said, I'll be the instrument. I'll be the fangs, the claws. Let me shred them. I'll take them out right now. How dare he taunt the living God? David had fear and respect for the Lord God. Goliath did not. And who conquered whom? God is not mocked. What's our verse say? You're still in verse 5, right? Proverbs 17, 5, Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. So apparently, God is neither mocked nor insulted. For in both cases, that person is punished. Now, to end on a positive note, as the Spirit's taught us many times in the past, the integrity of God's judgment cuts both ways. That's what I love about Him. He says, I'm not going to be mocked. If I say something is, then it is. If I say you're going to be blessed for following my commands, you will be. If I say you're going to be cursed for disobeying me, you will be. But with the same strength and accuracy and perfection, you understand? I'm going to pass my judgment. And it's going to cut in whatever direction you decide. But I can tell you this straight up, I am never mocked. For better or worse, I am never mocked. The Bible simply states that we reap what we sow. And as we noted last time, the one who does good is blessed up here on the board. Proverbs 14, 20 to 21 in the Amplified Classic, the poor is hated even by his own neighbor, but the rich has many friends. He who despises his neighbor sins against God, his fellow man, and himself, but happy, blessed, and fortunate is he who is kind and merciful to the poor." It cuts both ways, my friends. God is perfectly righteous, perfectly just. We reap what we sow. God is good. And you know what? I'll end this way. We wouldn't want it any other way. We wouldn't want him any other way. Dwell on that. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of studying your word here this morning. Thank you for truth that sets us free, Father. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to the privacy of our own souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.